And let's turn to Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 17. Now hear God's word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away into the spirit, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, they are people's and multitudes, and nations, and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind, and handing over their royal power to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled." And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Amen. You may be seated as we come to contemplate God's holy word together today. Pray with me.
Our Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the, the rich and picturesque imagery with which you speak in your word and reveal to us your promises and the realities that are all around us and the hope that lies before us. Would you help us this morning to understand and would you use your word to encourage us and to strengthen us to continue to press on and to endure in this world, fighting, Father, by your strength against the schemes of the devil and against all of the currents of ungodliness that are in this world and all around us, as we would seek to stand firm in our faith and to grow in your grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, Father, give us understanding and give us strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to take a a few weeks here with you before we return to our Old Testament study of the Minor Prophets. We just finished the book of Amos and we're going to leap into the book of Obadiah. But before we do that, I wanted to dip into the New Testament with you and I wanted to spend a couple of weeks together in some of the concluding chapters of the book of Revelation, chapters 18 or 17 through 21 together for the next couple of weeks. The book of Revelation, and I know even as we read these words and these verses, or this book is often, is often thought of as a book that is full of darkness, it is, that is a confusing book. It's often thought of as a book that is full of, full of mystery, and, and it's cryptic in its language, and it's frightening, it scares us. But I want to tell you this morning that even in, the, even in this chapter, chapter 17, even in the midst of all of the dark and scary and, and hard language that's being proclaimed here, verse 14 of chapter 7 is a microcosm of the book of Revelation as a whole. All of these dark forces that are allied against the church and are arrayed together against the sovereignty and the goodness and the holiness of God and against Christ will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. And those who with Him are called and chosen and faithful. That's the message of the book of Revelation. It's not a book that's here to scare us. It's a book that's here to encourage us and give us hope. The scary stuff's already widely known to us. We look around the world around us and we see the darkness and we see the deception and we see the wickedness and we see the evil. And what we we feel like sometimes is that all of that stuff's bigger than us and and it might prevail ultimately in this world. And the book of Revelation exists to assure us that it will not. This is a book of victory. This is a book of triumph. And this is a book of hope which loudly and through and through proclaims that Jesus Christ has already secured the victory and will ultimately one day triumph over everything that is wrong in this world and establish Himself as the King over a kingdom of purity and holiness and righteousness forever. So, I want to study the end of the story with you a little bit so that we can get a glimpse of that hope and that victory together, which will help us in the midst of our lives as we continue in this world to be able to stand firm, to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, to be able to resist him, and to be able to grow in grace and and not be caught up in the currents of worldliness and ungodliness that currently characterize this world. So, 
With that in mind, let's consider together today chapter 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation. We're going to be a little more in-depth in 17 and then see how chapter 18, we're going to fly over the top a little bit quickly at the end to see how it is that the victory of Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, is portrayed in this world. As we come to these chapters, let me ask you a question that's going to seem weird to you. How many of you remember the story of Chicken Little? I promise this is going somewhere. (laughs) The story of Chicken Little is one of those old folk stories that Disney popularized back in the the days of World War II, back in the 1940s, and, and that's probably how we all heard of this story. Chicken Little was a little chicken who liked to walk around in the woods, and one day while he was walking, an acorn fell out of an oak tree and hit him in the head, right? And he thought that the sky was falling, remember? So he decided that he needed to go and find the lion, the big powerful lion, and tell him that the sky is falling so that the lion could help do something about it. So Chicken Little ran all around trying to get help from all of his friends to figure out where the lion was because he thinks the lion's going to help him. And the phrase from that tale, the sky is falling, is a phrase that that we've come to use colloquially to, to refer to anyone who has some kind of unreasonable fear, right, about something, or someone who would try to incite unreasonable fear in, in the people around them. A person who's able to whip people up into a frenzy for no good reason is a chicken little, right? But there's another message that's actually much more central embedded into the story of Chicken Little. Remember, if you remember that story, if you've read it to your kids or kids, if you've had it read it to you, Chicken Little convinces two of his friends, Henny Penny and Ducky Lucky, he convinces them that the sky actually is falling. And the three of them set off to find the lion, but they don't know the way. So they come to the house of Foxy Loxy. (laughs) Again, I promise this is a sermon on the Bible. (laughs) And when they get to Foxy Loxy's house, he tells them that he knows the way to the lion and that if they they come with him, he's going to show them. So he invites them into his house. So Chicken Little and Henny Penny and Ducky Lucky all go into Foxy Loxy's house, but... They never come out. Yeah, uh uh-oh, right? Because Foxy Loxy deceived him. He doesn't care where the lion is, and he's not what he seems to be. He had lured them in in order to eat them. It's another one of those wonderfully dark, morbid little kids' tales that Disney liked to popularize for us. But the point of it was, I think, to warn us of the fact that things aren't always as they seem to be in this world. That things that seem inviting and good might actually be things that lead unto destruction, which is wisdom that the Word of God proclaims. Even though certain things might look safe and, and seem profitable, we've got to be careful and we've got to use good judgment and be discerning and not get enticed into things that are actually going to be harmful for us like Chicken Little and his friends did. Now, Revelation chapter 17 and 18 are given to us by God in order to make that exact same point. This world all around us 
is not what it might seem and appear to be, and we have to be careful here. And by world, when I say the world, and when the Bible uses that word world, in this context, and I don't mean the planet itself, and I don't mean the people on the planet. The Bible uses the word world in several different ways. Sometimes it's referring to the planet. Sometimes it's referring to the people on the planet who we are to love. And sometimes, oftentimes, the word world refers not to the planet or the people, but to the the spiritual and philosophical system of thought, of beliefs, of values in this world which are not good, which are opposed to God and to His Word and that are at rebellion against Him and that are enticing people to go astray from God. That's how the word world is used, for example, when Jesus says that Satan is the ruler of this world. Or when James says that we must not be friends of this world lest we be the enemies of God. He doesn't mean don't be friends with people or the planet itself. He means don't be friendly with the worldview, with the wisdom and the values of this world because they are opposed to God. And so friendliness with the world in that sense is enmity with God. This is how we use the word world when we talk about worldliness as opposed to godliness, right? In that sense, the world is the spiritual system of rebellion against God that that characterizes this sin-cursed world. And what the book of Revelation helps us to see is that behind that rebellion against God in this world, behind it, and all of the ways that it's manifested here, behind it all is Satan himself, who is portrayed in this book as spewing a river of falsehood from his mouth, lies from his mouth, to try to deceive and sweep people away into everlasting destruction. And Satan is portrayed like this all throughout the book of Revelation. In chapter 12, he's portrayed as a great dragon who wants to devour image-bearing people and specifically the people of God. In chapter 13, John saw a, a picture of two great beasts, one that came out of the sea and one that was from the land, and they were working with the dragon, with Satan, as his emissaries, to spread the false teaching and the godless values and unbelief in this world. And those beasts, we're told, represent the kings of the world. They represent political structures, the powers of the secular state, world governments who are not for Christ but are against Him and are working in league with Satan to spread deception in order to bring destruction. And and the the beasts also represent economic influences in this world towards those end and, and religious influences in this world towards this end to twist and distort the truth and lead people into idolatry and all kinds of false worship and immorality. And you go, yeah, that's what's going on in the world. Well, the book of Revelation tells you why. It portrays the world, this system of godlessness and idolatry and rebellion and those beasts And worldly people who follow the beast instead of following Jesus. People who accept false godless values. 
and participate in ungodliness in all kinds of ways. And the word that the book of Revelation uses for people who do that, who follow the beasts instead of Christ, the word that the book of Revelation uses is the word earth dwellers. Those who dwell on the earth. Not people in general, but people who live with their view not fixed on Christ and holiness and the eternal kingdom of heaven, but fixed on the things of this world and become influenced by and, and directed by and defined by the wicked values of this world. They're said in this book to wear the mark of the beast on their forehead and on their right hands, which means symbolically that their thought processes, their minds, their worldviews, their value systems, their beliefs are governed as well as their choices and their decisions and the things that they do, their lifestyles are governed by, defined by the world in opposition to God as as opposed to the Word of God. They are ultimately being characterized by the mindset that Satan would spew instead of the holiness that God would proclaim. And one thing that we know about Satan is that from the beginning, he's been a deceiver, right? From the very beginning, just like Foxy Loxy in the chicken little tail. He's a master at making things seem different than they are. He's a master at seducing people towards destruction by enticing them with things that look good, that feel good, that seem harmless. That's what he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve right from the get-go, right? And he's been doing it ever since. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he disguises himself as an angel of light. He's really good at making evil seem good and good seem evil. Making darkness look like light and light look like darkness and, and enticing people to make compromises that might seem innocent and harmless in order to get along with everybody in the world. But all of that leads to the snowballing effects of sin and ungodliness that lead towards eternal destruction and that's what Satan wants. He's the prince of evil. He's promoting the way that seems right unto man, but eventually leads to death, eternal death. That's what he wants. In the version of the chicken little tale that Disney popularized in 1943, I think it was, in the little movie that they put out, Foxy Loxy is actually the one that convinces Chicken Little that the sky really is falling. And Foxy Loxy does that initially after he's reading in the movie, if you pay attention, he's reading Hitler's Mein Kampf. And he says, here's how I can fool these guys. I can, I can play on their gullibility, their innocence and their naivety and their lack of understanding and discernment and judgment, and I can whip them up into a fearful frenzy and then pose myself as the rescuer from a problem that doesn't really exist but that I created in order that they'll put their confidence in me and then I can eat them. And that's exactly what Satan is doing in this world with the help of the beast. And the, he's enticing us into trusting the world's wisdom and the world's way. But all along it would lead to eternal separation from Christ and death and destruction. And the name that Revelation gives 
to this spiritual world system of deception and rebellion and destruction that Satan is behind and working through the kings of the world and the political structures and and false religious structures and economic structures, the name that he gives all of that is the name Babylon. Babylon that appears right here in chapter 17. It first appears in chapter 14 where the whole world system is called Babylon. And it is said to have made all the nations in the world to to drink of the wine of her immorality. That's repeated here in chapter 17. What that means is simple. The, The way that the world thinks is a system of satanic deception that is intoxicating if you imbibe in it. Satan's deceptions and the immorality and idolatry of this world cause people who indulge in that worldliness to become more and more senseless. Less and less aware of the destructive effects of sin and the danger of the judgment of God that is to come. Now that's something that you don't... That that explains exactly what's going on in our world. People are literally spiritually becoming drunk and senseless the more and more they sip from the cup of the world's wisdom. So chapter 17 and 18 here, they pick up all of this imagery and they take that whole theme and they portray Babylon once again, this world system of rebellion and idolatry, false teaching, wickedness, this time portrayed as a great harlot, a prostitute in the words of verse 1 here of chapter 17. It's deliberate imagery. Because now God wants us to see that Babylon is not only deceptive and intoxicating, it's also very, very alluring and seductive. And so this is a warning for us, don't get drawn in. The satanic rebellion that characterizes this world is cleverly designed and disguised to be enticing, to be alluring, and to seductively draw people in deeper and deeper with with empty hollow promises of pleasure and success and purpose and meaningfulness in life that not only can't deliver, but actually end up being lies that devour people with growing misery, which leads to eternal destruction. You want to know why the things of the world are happening the way they are? This is why. The God who made it all is describing it for us in detail, in picturesque detail. These chapters proclaim who and what Babylon is, and they portray her great fall. As the holy almighty God is going to come and rain down judgment, bring the whole system crashing down. They portray, in chapter 18, the response to her fall, both by the people of the world who have leaned hard into the world system and by the people of God who have resisted it. And ultimately, they're giving us an urgent plea as the people of God to not participate in the seductions of Babylon, to not be friendly with the world, to not get drawn in, but to come out indeed, to be separate, to refuse to be defined by the false beliefs and false values and lifestyles of Babylon, because when her judgment comes... All who have become seduced by her temptations 
All who have been intoxicated with her deceptions are going to get caught up in that judgment with her. So, we're going to work our way through chapter 17. We're going to fly over chapter 18. We're going to find application as we go along, especially in that urgent call to the people of God to separate ourselves from Babylon and to not compromise and take part in her sins. So in chapter 17 here, God is giving John a vision, a vision of the fall of Babylon. And in chapter 18, it's the response to Babylon's fall and the implications of it. The vision here in 17, which portrays Babylon and portrays her fall, it's introduced in the first several verses, and then it's shown in verses 4 through 7, and then it's explained, it's interpreted for us. Isn't that wonderful? You get symbolic imagery, you wonder what it all means, and God says, well, I'll interpret it for you in verses 8 through 18. In verse 1, one of the seven angels that's been speaking to John comes to show John the judgment against Babylon. And so what we're seeing is an amplification of what the rest of this book proclaims. That even though there is great wickedness in this world, God is working to bring judgment upon it and He will triumph over it. Babylon here is pictured as a great harlot, seated on many waters, it says. And verse 15 again tells us what it means. What does it mean that she's seated on many waters? Well, the waters signify peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So the picture here is of the world system of rebellion against God having influence over all of the people and kingdoms of the world. It's not isolated. It's not localized. It's global. It says that as she sits on many waters, the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And here's this word, the dwellers of the earth, the earth dwellers have become drunk with the wine of her immorality. It's a perfect description of how Satan's lies and seductions have come to influence the world we live in through those who are in charge and bearing great influence over the population of the planet. In verse 3, John is carried away and he sees that this harlot Babylon is seated on a scarlet beast. And that beast is full of blasphemous names, has seven heads, has ten horns on its heads. This is identical to how the beast that we were talking about a minute ago in chapter 13 is portrayed. This is the same beast once again. The, the seven heads that this beast has signify a fullness, a completeness of authority on this earth. And the ten horns signify great power that is spread throughout the whole earth. Once again, this beast represents world government, the secular state, as it's manifested throughout the world, throughout history, and uses its power, uses its worldly authority to promote ungodliness and wickedness in the world, and to put pressure on people to conform to the ways of the world, and to persecute people who won't capitulate. To make life hard for people who remain faithful to the ways of God. Again, excellent description of what's been going on and continues to go on in this world. 
here, Babylon, this seductive spiritual system of wickedness and godlessness is shown as a harlot riding a beast. So there's this direct connection, see? There's this cooperation between the two. There's this definite linkage between Satan's program of seductive deception and the world political powers of government on this earth through all kinds of economic and political and social and cultural means to work to promote Satan's agenda and to pressure and tempt people to participate in that because the lie is that'll make your life more meaningful and if you don't do it, you'll suffer when really it's all leading to ultimate destruction. And Babylon is shown in verse 4 to be adorned with gold and jewels and pearls which is just a picturesque way of saying the world system of rebellion against God looks attractive to the people of this world. She allures people with fancy things, with wealth, with money, with opulence, with success, with comfort. So where the beast represents political and military powers that Satan uses to pressure people, Babylon has elements of both religious and economic influence that Satan uses to seduce people away from trusting God, worshiping God. Put your hope in the things of this world instead of Him. The world offers the promise of hope and happiness and pleasure and success and comfort. But to be drawn in by those enticements is to become tempted by the cup that Babylon holds. She's holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. To give too much attention to the treasures of this world, see, to cherish and desire wealth and success and fame and popularity and and worldly treasures too much makes us vulnerable to the impurity and immorality that so often come along with earthly treasures. That's what's going on. Because the heart that wants earthly treasures too much is the sinful heart, the prideful heart, the self-focused heart, the me-first heart. And that heart is set against God. And that heart is weak and vulnerable to the seductions that Satan is offering to the desires of our flesh in this world. So here in verse 5, this prostitute's name is made explicit. She is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. The spiritual system of rebellion against God is the, the, the progenitor of every kind of wickedness, immorality, and sin that is so seductive and enticing to human beings in this world. In verse 6, Babylon the prostitute is portrayed as being drunk herself with the blood of the saints, the martyrs of Jesus. So that, that helps us understand the agenda. She doesn't just want to tempt people to indulge in immorality and worldly pleasures. She's not just gleeful about sinful indulgence. Ultimately, she's bent on the destruction of people who were made in the image of God. What drives her as she's driven by Satan is a hatred for God and a longing to see God's people destroyed 
So we can see here the antithesis, right, that's being revealed to us in terms of how things work in this world. There's no neutral territory portrayed here, right? There's nothing neutral about the values of this world and about what the the non-Christian sector is promoting in this world. There's no common ground to be found for the people of God with the values of this world. Any suggestion that there's some neutral territory where we can kind of let the world define for us what's good and beautiful and true, that's just a lie. That's just a seductive deception that would lead us to being devoured by Satan's lies. In this world, the people of God who don't compromise, who keep standing firm, who don't allow the world to define what's good and true and beautiful and insist on all of that being defined by God from His Word alone, those are the people who end up getting persecuted by the power structures of this world. That's how it works. Satan and the beast and Babylon are going to draw people in with this enticing lie that if we cooperate, if we find neutral territory, if we compromise, if we play along with Babylon's program, we'll have peace, happiness, fulfillment in our lives. But any kind of peace and happiness and fulfillment they offer is shallow, short-lived, and in reality it's just the, just the entrance to Foxy Loxy's house. It's the way into destruction. And if people won't walk through that door, if people insist on following the way of Christ without compromise, then Babylon will just feed them to the beast and persecute and afflict and martyr all those who resist the seductive lies of Satan in this world and stand firm instead on God's truth. One way or the other, either through seduction or persecution, Satan, through the beast means to destroy human life by way of the enticements of this world, Babylon. And of course, the contrast is that whereas Babylon is using seductions and lies to defile and to destroy, Jesus, on the other hand, is using the pure water of His Word to purify His church, His bride, so that she will be spotless and clean and robed with righteousness and true beauty for all eternity, so that the more and more our minds are fixed on the holiness of God and the purity of Jesus Christ and loving what He loves and hating what He hates, the more our minds are full of the truth and the wisdom of God, the more sensitive we get about the contrasting evil in this world. And and you know that there are a lot of Christians in this world who are going to churches that aren't sensitizing their minds that way. And so they're comfortable with the world's values. And they say they're Christians and they're followers of Jesus, but they're awfully at home in this world and friendly in terms of the values of this world. Where God would have us feeling the contrast more and more and more by sensitizing us to His holiness and the antithesis of His righteousness and beauty. That's what He wants to lead us to for all of eternity. And so, the bride of Jesus, which is how He portrays the church and all of His people, all of us, is going to be portrayed, we'll see it in a couple weeks, in chapter 21. 
as being the polar opposite of Babylon the prostitute. The bride of Jesus is supposed to represent holiness and purity instead of Babylon who represents godlessness and impurity. The bride of Jesus is given life forever by Him, but Babylon is only interested in death and everlasting destruction. The bride of Jesus is clothed with beauty and glory for all of eternity, but but Babylon's beauty is, is shallow and hollow and fleeting. Her beauty will be turned to ashes in a single hour, chapter 18 says. So the book of Revelation in all of this is urging us as God's people, where we're living in this world, not to be impressed with the treasures and the wisdom and the values of this world. Not to get drawn in by all of the seductive materialism and worldliness. Not to get drawn in by the wisdom of wokeness and everything that the world says is good and right and true. But to cherish the wisdom and the truth of God and the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Can't let the world say to us, here's what's right, here's what's good. And we go, well, that's what everybody else is, so let's just go that way. I want to be virtuous like the world. No, you don't. It's the way that seems right, but its end is death. So we have to see Babylon for what she is and resist her temptations, resist her enticements, and remain pure and undefiled as the bride of Christ No matter what the cost, that's the message. And when John sees this vision and and the the system of values that this world is is promoting and, and sees that they're portrayed as a seductive harlot riding on this beast representing the governing authorities of the world, and that together Satan and Babylon and the beast are are trying to deceive and destroy people, when John sees all of that, he is, it says, alarmed. You say, well, of course he's alarmed. That's scary. He's shocked. He's appalled. That's the sense of this word alarm. But more than that, it means he's afraid. That's what the word means in verse 6. He's terrified by the beast and by Babylon and by how effective they are in promoting the agenda of Satan in this world. He's scared. And in verse 7, the angel who's showing all of this to him asks him why. Why are you afraid? And he doesn't just mean, doesn't just mean why does it bother you? Of course it's going to bother him. He means what are you afraid of? That's a great question for us Christians. The reason the angel asked John that question is that as terrifying as Babylon and the beast and Satan himself are, we don't have any ultimate reason to fear them. Because the sovereign, holy, almighty God is going to utterly destroy them and be victorious over them. And so we can see the relevance of these chapters for us as we live in this world. That's why it's in your Bible. Not to describe some future time that you'll never be a part of, but to describe the time that you are a part of now and how to endure and live unafraid of the forces of this world because you belong to the King and He is victorious. So in the rest of chapter 17, the angel interprets all of this symbolic vision for John in order to proclaim that the King is going to conquer And Babylon is going to fall. 
And then in chapter 18, we're shown that fall. And then in chapters 19 through 21, we're shown what lies ahead for those who have trusted and followed Jesus in this life. Here in verse 8, he says that the beast was and simultaneously is not. And what that means is, beast is powerful as it is, is as good as defeated, and is on the verge of being utterly destroyed ever since the victory of Jesus on the cross, and his resurrection over death, his defeat and conquest of that, and his ascension and enthronement into heaven, where he was invested with eternal dominion and glory in a kingdom that cannot pass away. Ever since then, the kingdom of this world, the the beast of Revelation, is defeated, is in its death throes. You don't have to be afraid of it. And the day will come when Jesus will return and finish it off. And then the only kingdom that there will be, the only authority and power and government that will remain will be that eternal kingdom of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you look around and you say, oh, it's just so horrible here. All the terrible things that are going on and and it makes me afraid all the time and I feel anxious. Don't be afraid. Babylon is already defeated and Babylon will fall. It's a guarantee. The world system of authority and government that shakes its fist at God will be brought down. And when it does, verse 8 says... All of the, there's this word again, all of the earth dwellers who have aligned themselves with it, who have borne the mark of the beast, who think like the world, who do like the world, all of those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life will marvel, there's that same word, at the destruction of Babylon. Again, it means to be mortified, terrified, horrified. Why? Why will they be terrified? Because they've put all their hope in this world. All their security has been anchored to the beast instead of to Jesus. And the destruction of the beast and the destruction of Babylon is going to leave them completely unmoored with anything to anchor hope to. Completely adrift and vulnerable to the sovereign God who has conquered and destroyed the beast in Babylon. In verse 9, the angel calls for hearers of this vision, this this revelation, to have wisdom about the beast so that we can discern what it is. Then he gives us the wisdom. He says that the beast's seven heads are seven mountains on which the prostitute Babylon is seated. And then he tells us what that means in verse 10 where he identifies the mountains as kings. Mountains are a symbol of strength, right? They're used that way in the Bible often to describe kings and kingdoms of the world. Verse 10 makes it explicit. That's what he's signified here. The number seven in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, is is used very often to signify fullness or completeness coming from the seven days of creation where, where God's creative work was finished. So in Revelation, you got all kinds of seven. Seven churches, seven lampstands, seven spirits, seven stars held in Jesus' hands, seven horns, seven eyes on the Lamb's head, seven seals on the scroll, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven angels, seven heads on the beast, on and on and on. God loves to use the number seven in the book of Revelation 
to signify completion. Well, here it signifies the fullness of earthly authority and worldly government and power that that Babylon, the, the, the world system of rebellion, has sway over. Her godless, rebellious, seductive influence, again, isn't localized, it's global. And it's manifested through every world government all throughout history. Some of these have already fallen, obviously. Verse 10 says, like the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the empire of Alexander the Great, they fell. Despite all their strength and prestige and influence, they fell. One is, the angel says to John, maybe referring to the Roman Empire of his day, which has fallen in our day. And one is yet to come and remain for a little while, for a short time. Verse 12 calls it a a single hour, which is referring to the final phase of the history of the world. Now, I think you should avoid the temptation to try to identify specific nations or world powers, especially with this last one. It's not the point. It's not the point. The point is, where the first six heads represent a long history of earthly kingdoms that have come, the last one represents a relatively short period. A final manifestation of evil. One last big push by Satan and Babylon and the beast that's also going to fail and come to nothing fast. That's the point. And the point is, since the the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus, we're living now in the final phase of human history. These last days, the New Testament calls it through and through. The fall of Babylon is imminent. Jesus can come at any time and bring it all crashing down. The kings of the earth, the beast under Babylon's sway, are going to make war against the Lamb, and they are, aren't they? We can see it all around us. But the Lamb will conquer them because He's the King of kings. And those who are with Him, those who are His people, those who are called by Him, chosen by Him, faithful to Him, instead of the beast, will reign with Him forever. So we have to remain faithful in His strength, by His grace, even as all the wickedness and idolatry and persecution get more and more intense and the wheels seem to be coming off of the wagon of this world more and more and more. seems like there's no no wheels anymore. It's just hurtling down a hill and cartwheeling now, right? Well, at the end of chapter 17 here in verse 16, God reveals to us that the wheels do all come off. And the whole system does crumble when the beast makes war against Babylon herself. When the political and military powers of the world that that have been shaking their fists at God start to make war against the economic and religious influences of the world that are also in rebellion against God. So so they, they start to ambush one another. The whole system becomes self-defeating, in other words. The destruction goes both ways and it starts to destroy itself. 
And so they'll make her desolate and naked and burn her with fire. Verse 16 says, World governments, in collusion with false religion and economic powers to make war against God, will end up destroying the economic and religious institutions of the world. It's pictured here. It's happening, isn't it? Great economic resets and global communism and everybody wants to be so... It's the wisdom of the world is going to destroy itself in its effort to make war against God. That seems so familiar, right? You see the rise of atheism in this world? Religion is being cast out wholesale. Any notion of God is being scoffed at wholesale. Christians are being persecuted all over the world. Religion in general, even false religion, is less and less tolerated by the governments of this world. Economies being brought to ruin with the godless government policies like socialism and Marxism. The beast and Babylon both hate God and have conspired together against God and His church. But Satan's kingdom is a divided kingdom. And a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand and it will not stand. And the great irony, of course, of all of it is that as this world literally rips itself apart, raging against God, they're ending up accomplishing God's sovereign purposes. Just like the wickedness of the Jewish leaders and the Romans did when they nailed Jesus to the cross, that horrible act of wickedness ended up accomplishing the greatest purposes of God for redemption. The beast and its allies, the earth dwellers raging in hostility against Jesus, raging against the bride that is his church, turn out in the end to be the weapons that God is using to bring down Babylon herself, who was once the beast's royal consort. But he'll devour her. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So by her own seductive, deceptive duplicity, Babylon will fall. And when she does, we're going to hit the gas here in chapter 18. When she does, the response by the people of this world will be very, very different than the response of the people of God. Just look at the first three verses there of chapter 18. The, the angel from heaven proclaims Babylon's fall in poetic form. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird and every unclean and detestable beast. Again, there's nothing neutral about Babylon, about the values of this world. And God's going to bring it all to an end. Because, verse 2, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So, Verse 5 says her, her, her sins are, are heaped up as high as heaven. Verse 6 says that she's worth a, a double portion of judgment. 
because her sins against God are so severe. Verse 7 says she's glorified herself with worldly luxury. She says in her heart, I'm a queen. I'll never know any mourning. She thinks she deserves to live in luxury when really she deserves God's judgment. She thinks she's a queen, but she's rejected by the true king. She thinks she'll never know sorrow because all her hope is wrapped up in her idolatry. And so for all of this self-reliant, self-indulgent, godless rebellion, God's going to bring Babylon to an end quickly. For plagues will come in a single day, verse 8 says. And most of the rest of the chapter 18 records the response when that happens. When the economic and religious system of the world that defies God, that entices people away from Him, when it falls, then... The rest of the chapter says the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and all the people of the earth who have depended on Babylon instead of trusting God will lament her destruction because their primary concern is themselves. Their whole lives revolve around their own desires. And so when the things that they've depended on and leaned on to satisfy their desires get destroyed, they mourn, they lament because of what it means for them. But in verse 22, when the angel ties a millstone around Babylon's neck and drops her into the sea so that she'll never rise up again, the contrast is there is rejoicing in heaven as the saints of God give praise. Not just because of the terrible fate that the followers of Babylon are suffering, but because the holiness of God is vindicated and His name is glorified and that's what we stake our hope to. That's what we want more than any of the treasures and pleasures of this world. So the picture is of all of the stuff that we tend to want in our flesh to anchor our hope and confidence and comfort and security to in this world getting utterly destroyed and we're rejoicing because all we're left with is God and His glory. You don't need the stuff. Praise God when He gives you the stuff to sustain you in this world, but this is not your home. And the stuff is not your treasure. Because we are not concerned with self, we are concerned with Him and with His holiness and with His glory. And that is our treasure for eternal days. So see, Ultimately, that's what these chapters leave us with. It's a picture of what's going on in this world and what's going inevitably to come of all of it. And it's an exhortation to us to not live like these people that are called the earth dwellers, to not be people whose whole lives revolve around our own desires and the things that we can accumulate in this world to satisfy our desires. Don't be consumed with the idolatry of me. Don't be seduced by the harlot Babylon. Don't become intoxicated with the pleasures and the things of this world too much. Don't be deceived by the godless values and wisdom and beliefs of this world. The great exhortation of this chapter is in verse 4 of chapter 18. As the fall of Babylon has been proclaimed, she's going to fall forever. So come out of her, my people. 
lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That's the exhortation for us as God's people. It's to be separate from Babylon. We live in this world, but we are not citizens of this world. It is not our home. We are sojourners here. And that means we've got to discern all of the ways that the satanic and demonic and godless influences of the devil are at work in all of the clever and subtle and deceptive ways that he operates as an angel of light and how they're all woven through the fabric of this world and its institutions. How do Satan's strategies manifest themselves and show up in all of the cultural and economic and philosophical and religious institutions of this world? How are those values in government policy and in business and in economy and in culture and in the arts and in entertainment and in academic institutions and in churches, how are they having an influence through all of those kinds of institutions in our world? That's what Babylon is. She's behind the LGBTQ agenda that is so vogue today. She's behind the the Marxist wokeness that is so vogue today and the redefinition of human sexual identity and gender roles and all of that and the massive proliferation of every unimaginable form of immorality everywhere in the world and all the materialism and all the false religion and false philosophy and worldly psychology. She's behind all of it. All the corruptions of pure doctrine and the teachings of God's holy word. In countless myriad ways, the seductions of Babylon are enticing people to compromise. And people are becoming more and more drunk with the wine of her immorality. They're becoming more and more senseless. So that we look, by contrast, anchored to God's word, having his wisdom to find for us truth and righteousness and beauty. We look and go, what is going on? How can people be so senseless? They're drunk, literally, with the wine of Babylon's immorality. They're under Satan's guidance and influence in collusion with the beast and the political forces of this world, and it's all going to fall. This is why John tells us in 1 John 2.15 that if anyone loves the world, then the love of God isn't in him. This is why James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. There's no neutral ground. And we've got to stop thinking there is. We've got to stop thinking that as the people of of God, we can say, well, maybe they're on to something there. And maybe we should trust that little bit because because then at least we we wouldn't be chafing against the people that live around us and our people who are uh, the earth dwellers so much and and we could live at harmony and and peace and in unity. Sounds good, right? Foxy Loxy says, come on in. It's warm. It's cozy in here. We can all get along. We We can break bread together until they realize that they're the bread. There's no neutral ground. The values, the beliefs, the ideals of this world are set against God, and we must be separate from them and from the worldliness. We can't be friendly with it all, because if we are, we'll take part, not just in Babylon's sins, but with her fall. And I fear that in our time, a lot of people who call themselves followers of Jesus are are being seduced by the enticements of Babylon and they're becoming more and more friendly with the world 
and true godliness is coming to be seen as, as more and more abnormal and dangerous and divisive and bad, while sin and idolatry and immorality are more and more seen as, as normal and healthy and good. Well, God's Word tells us that's what's going to happen, and it tells us what happens when it does. We can't go there. We can't be conformed to this world, and the only way not to be is to keep being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So pray with me today, brothers and sisters, that the Holy Spirit will give us great discernment from God's living Word, great conviction to forsake the world and its sinful values, great courage to stand firm for the truth and the holiness of God, the purity of His Word, for the cause of His glory, no matter what the cost. Can you stand firm? Can you bear up your cross as you follow Jesus in this world? Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would give us great wisdom and discernment. We pray that you would make us a people of your word who are washing our minds more and more and more with the truth and the purity of your word that we might discern all that is in contrast to it in this world. Father, may we not let our minds and hearts be influenced more by the messages of this world and the things that this world is purveying than by the truth of your word, that we might see it for what it is. And Father, give us strength to stand firm, no matter what the cost. Help us not back down, even in the midst of ridicule and scorn and and possibly persecution and martyrdom. Father, may we be like Christ who had His face set towards the cross in order to bring You glory. And may we bear up our crosses as we follow Him and count the cost as we follow Him and remain faithful and also loving in calling people out of darkness and into the light of His eternal kingdom. And so, Father, we simply say, give us grace and glorify Yourself and let the light shine. Give us confidence of the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And, Father, use us in this world while there's still time to shine the light of truth and gospel hope. All of this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And we say, Amen.